The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning to study in the word of God. We are indeed in Romans for our review. And we are in chapter 12. We began on Wednesday night looking at verses uh, 9 through 21 of Romans chapter 12. We will go back and uh, review quickly what we looked at on Wednesday night and then pick up where we left off and move on from there. Before we do any of that, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We do need to ensure that our hearts are prepared for the study of the Word of God. This entails confession of sin, if needed but also humility. We are incapable of learning if we are full of pride. We have to be humble in order to be teachable, shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful And loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to gather here at the church this morning. We thank you for all the grace provisions that made this possible. We ask that each and every one of us would take full advantage of the blessing that you've offered us this morning. The opportunity for fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The opportunity to consider what your word has to teach us this morning. Help us us each and every one be ready to learn, to know more about you to become closer to you in the process, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right, so we were here, verses 9 through 21 of Romans chapter 12. We will again review what we looked at on Wednesday night. Here's the translation. Again, we spent a lot of time Several years, in fact, going through the verse-by-verse study of Romans, and this is the translation we ended up with in the process. Love should be without any hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling closely to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Excel in showing honor to one another. Not holding back in your diligence, enthusiastic in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, consistent in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but instead associate with the lowly. Stop being wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the judgment of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live in peace with all people. Never take justice into your own hands, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Stop being overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with that which is good. Now, let me back up to that last slide real quickly. We talked about this several times in this, but it's so important. My understanding for years, this idea of heaping burning coals on someone's head is that you were going to somehow inflict something upon the person that you 
fed or gave a drink to. Uh, and that's not what this is about. If you look at the whole context of the passage, the whole context of the passage is don't return evil for evil. Don't try to carry out your own justice. Allow God to carry out the justice. It's not yours to do. So we took some time when we were going through verse by verse and we were looking at the heaping of the burning coals on the head. It's the picture of someone who actually has been brought to a place of repentance. The idea is not that you'll inflict harm on them, but in doing these things that you'll actually get them to realize the way they're behaving and repent. That's the idea of the burning coals on the head. It's a picture of that. And we talked about it during our verse by verse study. Principles, quickly, again, we already looked at these, so we're going to go through them quickly. I won't do the verse references uh, in, as far as turning to those. God's standard for agape love is that it should always be genuine without hypocrisy, 2 Corinthians 6, 6. The standard for love is that it's not hypocritical. In other words, it's not just a show. It's not just a show. You're not just pretending to love with agape love. It's supposed to be genuine. You're supposed to really love with agape love. And if you understand agape love, it's the idea of being able to love. And this was something I pointed out on Wednesday that some of you may not have thought about. For the longest time, I had this picture of agape love, that agape love is love that's directed towards an object that has no merit. Agape love is love that's directed towards an object of any merit, from zero to infinite. And the reason I say that is we're supposed to love God with agape love. Agape love, the key with agape love is it's based on the integrity of your soul, not the merit of the object. So when you love someone who seems to have no merit whatsoever with agape love, that's exactly how it's supposed to work because it's based on the integrity of your soul. When you love God with agape love, it's based on the integrity of your soul. It's irregardless, if you want to put it that way. It doesn't have, it does not have uh, a component of it that depends upon the merit of the object. Agape love is based on you, not the merit of the object. But I always thought that the object had to have no merit. But the reality of it is the object can have any merit across the spectrum. So you can love any, any, anything with agape love, all the way from somebody uh, who you feel like has zero merit whatsoever, all the way up to God himself who has infinite merit. All that can be uh, the object of agape love. Uh, this is also the divine standard for Philadelphia, which is brotherly love, 1 Peter 1.22, as well as wisdom, James 3.17, and faith, 1 Timothy 1.5, 2 Timothy 1.5. In other words, our Philadelphia love should be genuine, our wisdom should be genuine, our faith should be genuine. We're not putting on a show. It's not a fake out. It's the real deal. As we develop divine viewpoint, we gain the ability to discern between good and evil, Hebrews 5.14. So important. When you're a brand new baby believer, you don't have the capacity to fully distinguish. Something that we gain as we grow in the faith. And I pointed out multiple times uh, from this pulpit that when I first got saved, there were certain things that I thought were good. As I grew in the faith, I realized they weren't. Uh, as I became a baby believer, there were certain things that I thought were bad. And as I grew in the faith, I began to realize they were not bad. So my understanding of good and bad when I first got saved was not what it would eventually become. And by the way, I'm still in the process. I don't know about you, but I'm still in the process of learning these things. So uh, we are, we're never supposed to stop growing. All right. The mature believer has learned to hate what is evil and cling closely to that which is good. 
Uh, hatred is not the absence of love. It's a very confusing concept to the world. Hatred is not the absence of love. Love and hate can coexist. And God explains that to us in his word. For example, uh, I can love someone with agape love and hate something that they're doing. Right? That's very, very common. Uh, so, um, you know, we have, uh, I've mentioned it before, uh, our next door neighbors that live right over just across from us there at the house. It's a lesbian couple from Houston. They actually live in Houston and they come up on the weekends a lot of times and stay at the little place that's there. What survived the fire back in 2011. And, uh, I, I, I love the people over there with agape love, but I hate that they're living a lifestyle that's an abomination before God. Uh, and by the way, at least uh, one of the two claims to be a born-again Christian. I'm, I'm not going to question that. She might very well be, but she's not living a lifestyle that's pleasing to God. So love and hate can coexist. God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and abhors evil, uh, Leviticus 20, 23. So if God can love and hate at the same time, and he is love, not only does he love, he is love, but he abhors evil. Uh, we must be careful. This was this is when a point I spent a little bit of time on on Wednesday. We must be careful what we cling closely to because we will become one with whatever or whomever we are intimate with. First Corinthians six fifteen through seventeen. So whatever you attach yourself to closely, be careful because you can become one with that. So you can become one with your smartphone. So that sounds stupid, but you know what I mean. I mean, there are people, well, I promise you, there are young people today that if you took their smartphone away, they would be crippled and helpless. They would not know what to do. They would, they would really struggle big time without having a smartphone. Personally, if I didn't have it, uh, it would be a little inconvenient for me because it's a, definitely it's something that's a convenience. But can I find my way to the grocery store without my smartphone? Yeah, I can. I can. I can actually, believe it or not, I can actually open a paper map and find my way somewhere. I can do it, really. No kidding. But seriously, I'm making some jokes, but the reality of it is it doesn't matter what you cling to very closely. It can have an, an impact on you, and, and you can become one with whatever or whomever you are intimate with. Uh, if, we're, if we have a loving devotion to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will regard one another as more important than ourselves, uh, Philippians 2.3 very important to understand, Paul never suggests that you don't take care of yourself, that you don't pay attention to yourself. You should. And as I pointed out on a Wednesday, if you, go out in the, if you go out in the yard and you do a whole bunch of work out in the yard on a hot summer day and then you're thinking about going to the grocery store, I personally recommend you take a little quick shower before you go to the grocery store. Uh, the other people at the store would probably appreciate it. But see, the point is you are taking care of yourself. But what Paul points out here is that we, we don't merely look out for ourselves. We also look out for the interest of others, right? And that's supposed to be our mentality. We regard one another as more important. Uh, with this attitude of humility, 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, we will not seek our own honor. And that passage in Luke 14 is kind of an interesting one. Luke 14, 8 through 10, it's talking about when you go to a feast, a celebration, you don't take the place of honor. You don't walk over and take the place of honor. And then the host of the host of the event has to come over and say, <coughs> um, uh, uh, I actually reserve that for somebody else because that's going to be embarrassing for you and for whomever that was. But instead, you go to the event, you take the, 
the least of the places, right? And if the host wants to give you a better place, then they, they, they can do so, right? Whoever that is. Um, and so it just points out that we're not seeking our own honor, right? If you go take the place of honor, what are you doing? You're really trying to say, I'm the, I'm the most honored person, so I'm going to take the place of honor. And that's not the right thing to do. Instead, we will try to outdo one another. That was the language we saw in this passage. We will try to outdo one another in showing honor to others. In other words, it's almost, it's almost in our mind. It becomes, I hesitate to call it a contest, but we would actually be pleased if we were to outdo uh, our brothers and sisters in showing honor to them, right? That you, we want to be the leader of the church in showing honor to others. That's kind of the mentality that is put forth here in, in this passage. Romans 13, 7 and 1 Peter 2, 17 speaks to that. Uh, God supplies everything we need for our Christian walk and through the power supplied by the Holy Spirit, we are to be diligent. Now that, that seems like it's not consistent if God supplies everything, why do we do anything? Well, we still, he, he asks us to be diligent. And we looked at that in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, 2 Timothy 2, 15, uh, Hebrews 4, 11, Hebrews 6, 11 and 12, 2 Peter 3, 11 through 14. So in other words, we talked about it on, on Wednesday night. What are the three things, or you can name more than this, but what are the three uh, primary things that God asks of us? First is faith. We need to believe. We need to trust God. Second is obedience. Trust and obey. We have a song in our hymnal that talks about that. And the third is diligence. He asks us to trust. He asks us to obey. And he asks us to be diligent. But he supplies everything that makes it all work, right? He's the one that supplies. We should be enthusiastic in serving the Lord. And I talk about that. I hope I come across that way from the pulpit. Now, when I'm sick and not feeling too good, maybe I might not come across that way as much. But I I try to put forth the idea that I am enthusiastic about, about the Lord, about his word, about everything to do with the Christian walk. And we should be enthusiastic, but our enthusiasm should always be in accordance with truth. And we looked at that in Acts 18, 24 through 26. And this was the story about Apollos and how uh, he was not exactly proclaiming the right things. He was talking about uh, the baptism of John. When at that point in time, it was already time to move past all of that and start talking about uh, the spirit baptism and other things. And um, we saw that he was taken aside and talked to and and given correction so that he would teach things accurately. Right. That's what was mentioned in that passage. And the idea is that we always want to make sure that whatever we're doing is in accordance with truth. So and this is this is something I've complained about. You know, we're not supposed to complain, but I have I have actually done that in the sense that. I think a lot, of, a lot of churches make the mistake of getting believers that are young believers, brand new believers, that are real enthusiastic. I mean, when you've just placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you realize you're going to get to spend all of eternity with God, that's pretty exciting, I think. It was for me, although I rolled over and went to sleep because I was at peace. But, but the, the thing about it is it's pr it, you get pretty enthusiastic when you're a brand new believer. But unfortunately, a lot of churches send these people out to engage in ministry when they are not prepared for ministry yet. You've got to get people prepared for the ministry, whatever ministry they're going to do. So it always needs to be in accordance with truth. If we truly understand the hope that we have in Christ, we will rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and be thankful for the perseverance that is derived from tribulation. I could have left that last part out for most of you. Uh, most of you don't want to hear that part, but that's what it says. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
And in everything, give thanks, right? That's First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. But in Romans 5, 1 through 5, we learn about the fact that we should be thankful for what we can derive from tribulation. When God brings tribulation our way, it is not uh, supposed to be something that tears us down. It's actually supposed to be something that builds us up. Remember, God is in the building business. So when he brings tribulation our way, uh, we, we should realize the difficulties that we face in this life are meant to help us grow, not to tear us down. It's meant to help us grow. And we can learn perseverance. That's a big thing uh, that we need to learn in this life because we are going to have to persevere through a lot of different things. Uh, as we mature in the faith, we should become more and more consistent in prayer. We looked at Acts 114, Acts 242, Acts 6, 3, and 4, and Colossians 4, 2, the idea of consistency in prayer. Now, when it says in uh, 1 Thess 5, it says pray without ceasing. I mean, I, I like to point out it's not that you just uh, every single millisecond, or should I go nanosecond, or even smaller, that every single little split of time that you're in prayer. The idea of, of pray without ceasing is a consistency in prayer. In other words, you're praying throughout the day. Um, so whatever it is you're doing, doesn't matter what it is that you're involved in going on, there, you should have a consistent prayer life. You're, you're, you should be praying to God, talking to him. That's what I like to consider. I, you have an open and active conversation with God throughout the day. That's what prayer really is, is that's you conversing with God. And that's what you're supposed to do is have an open, active a conversation with him throughout the day. That's what is talked about in First Thess 5. Sharing with others is an outward activity of Christian fellowship. In fact, sharing and fellowship are the exact same word in the Greek, koinonia. Sharing and fellowship. So sharing with others is an outward activity of Christian fellowship. Galatians 6.6, 6, Philippians 4.15. Uh, we should be involved in the idea of sharing. Now, that sharing can involve all, all sorts of things. I talk about that with giving. Giving is not just money. Giving is giving of your time, giving of your prayers, giving of lots of things, right? There's, you can give in all sorts of ways. Sharing is the same way. Sharing is not just about giving somebody some money. You can share uh, a kind word. You can share all sorts of things uh, in the idea of Christian fellowship. We should actively pursue hospitality toward others, 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8. 1 Peter 4.9, including strangers. 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 10, Hebrews 13.2 and 3 John 5. Hebrews 13.2 is that very interesting passage. If I remember right, it's Hebrews 13.2, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, do not neglect show, to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Somewhere along in your life, you may not have even realized it, but you may have been uh, interacting with an angel. And uh, it was in the appearance of human form. You had no idea. That's why it says, it says without knowing it, you had no idea. Very interesting verse to consider the idea that somewhere along the way, you may, may very well have had an interaction with an angel. And, uh, you know, kind of a little test, if you will. How are you going to behave in that situation? And if you have that interaction, by the way, but, but so let, let's put it this way. That what Hebrews 13.2 is talking about is not talking about fallen angels. Uh, Hebrews 13.2 is talking about the, the holy angels, I like to call them. Um, 
the holy angels. That's an interaction. Now, are, do we have to be concerned about the fallen angels? Uh, yeah, they're out there. <laughs> now, are they showing up to us in human form? I don't think so, but the reality of it is uh, we, we have to be concerned about it because spiritual warfare is what's going on. Uh, so we have to be ready to deal with that as well. Regarding those who mistreat us, Jesus taught to speak well of them and pray for them, uh, Luke six twenty seven and 28. Speak well of them and pray for them, even those who mistreat us. And that's not an easy command to obey, but it is what is asked of us. He also showed us how to do this by example, Isaiah 53, 7, Luke 23, 34, 1 Peter 2, 23, 23. Jesus didn't just talk about it. He showed us by example. Rejoicing with one another is one of the great blessings of being part of the body of Christ. Philippians 2, 17 and 18. I think it's something that I told you, but I've told you all this before. I kind of missed out on this whole thing when I very first got saved. Uh, 17 years old, I got saved. I, I, I kind of was of this idea that, you know, I can, I can be this little lone wolf Christian and I, can, I got all I need. God's going to give me everything for life and godliness. I don't need other people. Well, what I, failed to, uh, what I failed to realize is that the body of Christ is one of those provisions of what I need for life and godliness, right? Other believers. And so the fellowship of the saints is very important. And being able to rejoice with others is a true blessing. It's a true blessing of being part of the body of Christ. But we need to realize, to the last point there, the fellowship of shared rejoicing also results in shared weeping. Job 2, 11 and 13, John 11, 33 through 36. And I, again, this was a misconception of mine when I was a new believer. I thought the idea of if as a Christian, I should be strong enough, whatever it is I'm going through, I should be strong enough that I should never weep. I should never shed a tear. Why? That's weakness. It's a sign of weakness if I cry. Uh, I beg to differ. Jesus wept. I don't think he was weak. Uh, we all will weep. If, in fact, if we truly love one another as we're supposed to love, remember brotherly love, Philadelphia love, is more of a kinship love. It's not just agape love, remember, is, is an integrity-based love. It's based on the integrity of who you are. But Philadelphia love, which is brotherly love, is a kinship love. It's, we have a kinship one with another. And if you truly love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then when they're hurting, you're going to hurt with them, and uh, you'll weep with them. You will weep with them. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing weak about that. In fact, it's precious. Now, this is where we left off. As we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, we should be harmonious with our fellow believers, which is to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, I could teach a lot about that. Uh, so we've been, for one of the things is we've been given a new self, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Very important concept. We'll be talking about that uh, a bunch more when we get to Romans 13, but we have uh, a new self in us, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. But when we talk about the mind of Christ, does anybody in here, does anybody in this room always think exactly the same way that Jesus would think? Do we always think that way? No, because we're going to have times when we fail that, right? We fall short of that. But the idea of the mind of Christ, I can make a good argument. I've heard this, this being expressed. I can make a good argument that the 66 books that are bound in this leather right here, I think this is actual leather, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. The 66 books that are bound in leather right here is the mind of Christ. 
And I have that available to me. So as I learn more and more about what the Word of God can teach me, I become more and more Christ-like in my thinking. So I have the mind of Christ available to me, right? I can learn. I can learn to think just like he would think, right? It's just right there for me to learn. So I can make an argument to that effect, that the mind of Christ is actually the, the Word of God. Oh, uh, I need to do Romans fifteen five through 7. Now may the God who gives steadfastness and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. That's that like-mindedness we were talking about in this point. Grant you to be of the same mind with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. So important. If we're sitting around and we're like-minded with one another, I'm, and I'm going to point something out. I'm going to point something out next hour at the beginning of the, the hour that is going to shock some of you, but it's something we need to be aware of, the reality of this. But if we're sitting around here and we're all like-minded with one another and it's not in accordance with Christ Jesus, what are we doing? What are we doing? We got, we got, just a, we got a social club. We got a mutual admiration society. We're all sitting around in uh, har- harmony with one another, but we're not in harmony with God. That's not where we want to be. That's why it's so important what Paul wrote here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Grant you to be of the same mind with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that with one purpose, I love this, I love this, with one purpose, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Accepting one another, again, accepting one another, that doesn't mean that uh, we promote sinful behavior in one another. What it means is we accept the differences as I mentioned, I've mentioned this before recently, that if I were to look around the room, and I, I know most of you pretty well, and if I were to put each of you into categories, if I were to develop categories for everybody in this room, I would have different categories for every single person. I would not, there would be no two people in the same category because you're all unique and different, and that's okay. You like things that I don't like. Cilantro, for example, but that's just that's that's a, that's a stupid example. But there but there's certain things. I mean, there are certain things that you like, and it's not something that I like. I like things that you don't like. We're different. But you know what we have in common? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and our faith in Him, and that's what bonds us together. And so we should be able to accept our differences in that regard. Now, doctrinal differences? No. Again, we're going to see that we're going to see that next hour. There's certain things. There's certain things that I'm not going to die on a hill over. I've told you before, I mean, the timing of the rapture, I'm convinced from my detailed study of the Word of God and others who've done better works than I could ever do, uh, that the rapture is going to happen prior to the tribulation, that the rapture is going to be the termination of the church, and it's going to happen prior to the seven years of tribulation. Now, there's others who believe it's going to happen after the tribulation begins. There's other people who believe that it happens at the same time as the second advent, that it's all time the same. I'm not going to part ways with somebody over that. That's not, that's not something that's worth parting ways over. But if somebody tells you that there's many ways to get to heaven and Jesus is just one way, that's a significant doctrinal difference. That's the gospel. And we, can't, we cannot uh, accept those kind of doctrinal differences. But when it comes to preferences, I mean, if, if you have a particular hobby you like to engage in and something I'm not interested in, I think I can live with that. I mean, the example I like to give is Pastor Bob Bolander at Austin Bible Church, the pastor who trained me. He had a deacon, Hugh Hatley. Um, pastor Bob was Army. 
Hugh Hatley Air Force, if you know anything about the military people, they don't, if you're in one of the other branches of the military, you're nothing, right? If I'm Army and you're Air Force, you, it was the Air Force guys, they sat around on pillows and were fed bonbons. You know, that's the way everybody views the Air Force, right? But when it came to personal interests, everything else you can think of, Pastor Bob and Hugh Hatley had nothing in common. Nothing. I mean, there's literally was nothing that they shared in interests and nothing else. But what they shared was the most important thing, and that was their Savior, Jesus Christ. And they were, they were, they, they were very close. Pastor Bob and Hugh Hatley were very close, uh, and he served as deacon for quite a while at that church. But they, they literally, as far as worldly stuff comes, they didn't have anything in common. So we can accept the differences uh, without having problems. Arrogance causes us to deem others as unworthy. Uh, That's a problem. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? You can see they didn't have a real favorable opinion of the tax collectors, did they? Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now, what's interesting about this is if you don't think the Bible, if you don't think the Bible has any sarcasm in it, (laughs) read that verse again. Read that verse again, because when Jesus says that the Pharisees are righteous, that is dripping with sarcasm. They think they're righteous. That's the problem, right? They thought they were righteous. They had an arrogance problem. Uh, Matthew eleven eighteen and 19, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Yet, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So, in other words, they, 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 you couldn't, there was no way you could make them happy, right? There was no way they were going to be happy. So, uh, John the baptizer, or John the Baptist, whichever way you want to refer to him, he came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon, right? But then, here comes the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, eating and drinking. And they say, look, look at this man, a glutton, drunkard. <clears throat> so, they were not going to be happy no matter what. Wisdom in one's own eyes is of no value and is woeful, actually. Uh, Proverbs 3, 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Do not be wise in your own eyes. And that's the whole thing. If you ever get to a place, and by the way, this could be wise in any category. If If you ever get to a place where you think, Wow, man, I'm pretty smart dude when it comes to this stuff, you know? I'm a I'm kind of a guru about this particular thing. And by the way, so there's all kinds of things that can lead you to this and it could be this could be spiritual as well. Right? Not this is not just in the realm of of worldly endeavors. This is this could be spiritual as well. If you get to the place where you think, "Man, I'm I'm reaching uh like level 12 of my spiritual walk and I'm surpassing all my other brothers and sisters and I'm the moment you start thinking that way, yeah, the moment you've, you've actually graduated into a uh, lower level, actually, <laughs> you've gone down. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. You got, it can come from all sorts of, of areas, like in my, in my secular job. 
I am not I am a, not a manager. I've been at the company almost 20 years now, and I'm not a manager. I'm an individual contributor at the company, and I am classified as what the company calls a SME in a number of categories. And if you know what a SME is, that's SME. It's a subject matter expert. So the company classifies me as an expert in these different categories. Let me tell you right now, there's so much I don't know, right? There's so much I don't know. Uh, are those areas where I can, I can uh, potentially serve the company? Yes, but to think that I'm an expert is, uh, I, I don't like the term because I'm not an expert. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. Now that's very important, not to exceed what is written. In other words, whatever, the, whatever is written is what is written. Don't try, to, don't try to go beyond that. Don't try to add to it. So that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you, do, that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Arrogant on behalf of one against the other. And remember, and you've got to remember in the context in Corinth, they had a real problem in the church with schisms. There were those who thought Paul was the great speaker whenever he would come to the church you know that was what they were they couldn't wait for the apostle paul to come and speak there were others apparently apollos was a real dynamic speaker and uh, paul admitted of himself that he wasn't much of a speaker he you know he would write things that would were pretty uh pretty effective but then as a public speaker maybe not as much but apollos was apparently a very dynamic speaker and there were some people that were like man apollos is the one others were like the apostle paul is the one and others still would say that, no, 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 it's Jesus Christ. And, they, and in, the, in that doing that, they actually were being divisive even of, of themselves. Instead of saying, you know what, we can learn from all of these people. That's what they really should have been saying. Um, but the reality of it is there were schisms there, and that's part of what Paul's addressing here. Uh, we don't want to get arrogant one way or the other. This one over that one, yourself over someone else, any of that. Isaiah 5.21 says, whoa, and you know, again, you never want to be the object of a woe in the Bible. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And boy, we got a lot of people. All you got to do is read uh, the comment section on uh, any news article and you'll find all sorts of people who think they're really clever. Uh, they really do. Uh, and the fact is they're, they might be clever, but they're, they're also clueless. So uh, those two are not a good combination. But woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Anytime God delivers that message, clever and deceiving themselves is what a lot of people are. That's exactly right. We are to respond in love to those who perpetrate evil against us. Uh, again, not a, an easy message to digest or to uh, command to follow. Matthew 5.39, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, remember, this is very important. This is rightly dividing the word of truth. Is this talking about saying that, well, a nation should not try to defend itself against another nation? No, we have all kinds of evidence in Scripture of nations defending their sovereignty. Remember, who gave nations sovereignty in the first place? God himself uh, did that. This is personal. This is personal behavior, right? If somebody does something to you, then turn the other cheek to him also. People try to use this uh, to declare that we should not, as a nation, try to even defend ourselves. But that's not rightly dividing the word of truth. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. 
Again, not easy to obey this, is it? That's the verse that comes right before. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. Now, you notice this is all good. If we stop right here, we could say, oh, yeah, okay, one another there. Sorry about that little thing popping up. That's all great, the one another right there, but... um, that's talking about believers, right? See, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. It's a one another. It's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sure, I can see that. But then, oops, that last little phrase, and for all people. So we're supposed to be even seeking after that which is good for unbelievers. Now, interestingly, I'll talk about something in just a second. Uh, very important concept. First Peter 3, 8 and 9 to sum up, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble-minded, not repaying harm for harm or insult for insult, but giving a blessing in its place since you were invited to act this way so that you might obtain a blessing. So we're not supposed to repay harm for harm or insult for insult. So when we, we talk about the idea of, of doing that which is good for others, I mean, what do we, what do, we do when it comes to Individuals, for example, like I mentioned my neighbors, a lesbian couple. Uh, how do you handle certain situations with them? What do you do? How, how, much, how much interaction should you have and in what way should it be? Um, if my lesbian neighbor asks me to uh, share with them in the buying of some dirt so that we can spread some dirt on our collective properties, you know, if, we, if they're going to buy a, buy a few loads of dirt, and ask me if I want to buy half of it and use some of it to spread it out on my property. Is there, I don't find anything wrong with that whatsoever. I can certainly participate. If they ask me to come over to a big party that they're going to celebrate with all their gay friends, hmm, I'm not going to that. I'm not going to participate in anything that actually supports and or um, uh, elevates, if you will, the sinful behavior, am I? I'm not going to do that. Uh, but... Spreading some dirt on our lawns, that doesn't have anything to do with whether it was a straight or a gay neighbor. Um, You know, I mean, uh, I know of examples here in the church where individuals had to make tough decisions about that. Uh, You know, individuals that were asking them to participate, for example, or to attend a a gay marriage celebration kind of thing, and and, uh, I, I would not. I would not participate in that. So even though I'm trying to build up others at the same time, I'm not going to try to I'm not going to support and build up their sinful behavior. That's different. You see what I'm saying? That's different. Uh, this requires maintaining an attitude of peace toward others, right? I, and, and in doing all of that, I don't want to. I don't want to try to uh, create turbulence with anybody. I want to be at peace with everyone if I can. Matthew five nine says, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God." This is the uh, beatitudes here in Matthew five. Blessed or happy, by the way, makarios, that word right there could mean happy as well. Blessed and happy are the peacemakers. Uh, Romans fourteen nineteen says, So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. This is, by the way, in Romans 14, this is in the context of the body of Christ with our brothers and sisters. Uh, but you can make application to unbelievers as well. James three eighteen says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the Bible talks about it. We are to be to be at peace with others. And this passage is the one we always talk about in as much as it's up to you. Because what can you do if the other person doesn't want peace? Can I force them 
to be at peace with me? I can't. But in as much as it's up to me, I want to be at peace with, with everybody. Yes. Yes, you've got to ask yourself the question. Jesse brings up a really good point. When it comes to whatever you're going to make a decision is whether you're going to participate in something or not, you know, in terms of whether an activity is righteous or unrighteous, are you going to participate and whatnot? Ask yourself the question. This is a great question to ask yourself. Is doing so going to glorify my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And if the answer is no, then you shouldn't do it. It's that simple, really. And so are you going to glorify Jesus Christ by doing some activity? You have to answer. By the way, it's, everybody has to answer that for themselves. I'll, I'll tell you my faith conviction on it, but everybody has to answer that for themselves. Some people would say don't even go in on a, on a, load, of, you know, a load of dirt with your, your gay neighbors. But I find that that's not an activity that's going to support their lifestyle. It's just some dirt for our lawns. And so uh, I'm not doing anything that's going to going to bring disfavor in the eyes of my savior if we walk in a manner worthy of the lord we will find favor in the sight of god and men and i've told you this is a big deal for me uh proverbs 3 3 and 4 do not let kindness and truth leave you but bind them around your neck uh, write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of god and man proverbs 3 and 4 and i'll talk about proverbs 3 3 and 4 and i'll talk about that in just a minute second corinthians 4 1 and 2 Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So both man and God are involved in that. And 2 Corinthians 8.21, For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So... Interestingly, when you say this, you've got to be careful about that. But obviously, there's going to be those who view things differently. But I was of the impression when I was first a believer, I was under the impression that if I did something and men were pleased with it, that men gave it approval, that I was doing something wrong because I was taught that I was supposed to be seeking the approval of God. But I added my own idea that if, if I got God's approval, I would not get any approval from man. But the reality of it is, if you do something that's right in the sight of God, aren't there going to be like-minded believers that are going to also approve of that activity? I think so, right? So uh, I, was on, I was mistaken thinking that if any, any person approved of what I was doing, then I had to be doing something wrong. We should uh, seek the approval of God and men and obviously like-minded. Uh, we should not seek our own justice but make room for God's wrath. So important. Proverbs 20, 22, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Wait for the Lord. That's a, that's a common message in this. Wait for him to exact vengeance. Proverbs 24, 29, don't, do not say thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work, right? That's not, we're, supposed, we're not supposed to say that. We're not supposed to say that. We're not supposed to be the ones that are doing the payback. Uh, God is going to take care of that. Now, let me give you an example. You, gotta, you, always have to, you always have to make application of these things. Let's say I'm, I run a business, and somebody who's one of my employees does something that's worthy of dismissal. 
Do I take a verse like that and say, oh, well, I'm not going to fire him because that would be me paying back evil for evil. No, 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 no. This is a, this is a contractual arrangement. They're an employee of yours. If they've done something worthy of dismissal, you certainly have every right to dismiss that individual. Now, you may choose in grace, you may choose to give them another chance. You may choose to uh, not dismiss them at that point in time, but you have, every, you have every right to do that. You're not trying to inflict justice. You're trying to take care of what uh, a contract between you and that other person. Remember, the Bible talks about that sort of thing all the time, right? People make commitments to one another. They do make, uh, if you will, covenants with one another, and uh, they're expected to uphold their end of it. We should recognize that only God will dispense righteous vengeance. This is such an important part of this. If I try to exact my own vengeance, can I be sure that I'm doing it in a righteous way? I can't. But Isaiah 59, 17, and 18 says, he put, on a right, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put garments... Excuse me, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will make recompense. Now, God's going to do so. He will do it, but he can do so in a righteous way. Nahum, how how often do we turn to Nahum? Nahum 1, 2, and 3, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful, excuse me. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In in whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. So he is going to uh, bring it about, right? He is going to bring it about. We do not have to be worried about it. Uh, we, we, in fact, he's going to bring it about in a perfect way with absolute righteousness. Uh, this does not mean that we are eager for others to suffer, but have like-mindedness with God and his desire for repentance. This is what the burning coals on his head is all about. We should desire that those who are doing things that are an abomination before the Lord, we should desire that they repent, right? All these people, that woman that I, uh, that woman that I talked about at that abortion rally, who was there screaming, we're here to kill the babies, right? That's what she said. She was at least honest, right? She said, we're here to kill the babies. Uh, I, my desire is that that woman repent, that she realize what she's saying and come to an understanding that we're talking about human, human beings made in the, in the likeness and image of God. And uh, she's desiring that they be killed. That is, that is something I hope she changes her mind about. I pray that she changes her mind about. Proverbs 24 17 and 18, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. In other words, by doing something like that, the Lord may actually turn the anger away from the individual who's doing the wrong thing. That's what it says. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Ezekiel 18:32 For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies declares the Lord God therefore repent and live. That's what God wants. If God wants repentance isn't that what we should want? I think so. Again, that's how we learn. That's why I say the Bible teaches us how to think like Christ. What do you think Jesus wanted? Did, did Jesus did Jesus want lightning to strike the Pharisees? And have them all just... No, he wanted them to repent. He wanted them to realize how arrogant they were being and come to realize that 
You know, when he when they when they were sitting there talking about the Sabbath and he tells them, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He wasn't saying that out of arrogance. He was saying that to try to get them to wake up and realize you're talking to the Messiah here. You guys have missed missed the mark. Right. So uh, he, he was trying to get them to repent. I'm trying to see where we are. Oh, good. We only have two more points. We can do this. Uh, in Christ, we are all overcomers. This is so important. First John five, four and five. Uh, because whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and the weapon of battle that has overcome the world is this, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, you, you are an overcomer. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer. So everywhere you read in Revelation the idea of the overcomer, that's everybody who believes in Jesus. Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, that's all believers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, by the way. Uh, Romans, I mean, excuse me, Revelation, excuse me, 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, do you need to be worried about the lake of fire? No. The lake of fire is the second death. I'm not worried about the lake of fire. I'm not going there. And if God asks me the question, why shouldn't I send you to the lake of fire? I'm going to go to him with an empty hand and say, I got nothing but faith in your son, Jesus Christ. That's all I got. Revelation 2.17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. That's a promise to all of us as believers. We are overcomers through faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation 2.26, he who overcomes and he who... And notice what it says. This has a qualifier on it. It's the only one. Revelation 2.26 is the only one with a qualifier on it. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. In other words, and this, by the way, is in the millennial kingdom. The idea of keeping the keeping the, the deeds until the end. That, so there's a reward, in other words. There's a reward for those who keep the commandments, keep the deeds all the way until the end. Every other one of these instances, there's no qualifier like that. Uh, Revelation 3, 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. Promise to every born-again believer. Uh, Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And finally, in Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. That's all of those except for the one verse that I showed you that had a qualifier on it. All of those are promises that are given to every born-again believer because all of us are overcomers in Christ. Therefore, we should not be overcome and enslaved by anything. 2 Peter 2, 18 through 20. For speaking out arrogant and empty words, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who just barely escape from the ones who continually live in error promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of moral decay. For by what someone has been overpowered, by this he has been enslaved. For if, after they escaped the defiling influences of the world, 
by the full knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they once again in, uh, they are once again entangled in them and are subsequently overpowered. The last state has become more severe for them than the first. Right? And we looked at this in detail when we were at the end of Second Peter two. This is absolutely talking about born again believers in Jesus Christ. Absolutely talking about believers. Why does it say the last state has become more severe for them than the first? Because now they are children of God. And they have turned away from him, and in so doing, they are going to find themselves under the hand of his discipline, and his discipline will be increasing upon them. So it's it's not that they've lost their salvation, but now as a child of God, I mean, think about it for a second. You're in a grocery store, just real quick, you're in a grocery store, and someone else's child misbehaves. You're probably not going to do anything about it. You're probably going to... Just see that and say, boy, that parent over there needs to do something about their child that's misbehaving. You're at a grocery store and your child misbehaves. You're probably going to do something about it, aren't you? Because that's your child. So that's the point. As, as a born-again believer, you now are a child of God. And so he's going he, to absolutely uh, bring discipline down upon you as a result of your turning away. Uh, so... We should not be enslaved by anything. That's what that passage is talking about, becoming overempowered or overpowered, I should say, overpowered by things of the world. But indeed, instead, we should be victorious over the things of the world through Christ. That's what we're supposed to do, Romans 8:37. Instead, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So we, we conquer. We are victorious. Remember, I talk about it all the time, the victorious uh, Christian life. How does that come about? Through him who loved us. Through Christ. He's the one. And obviously the Holy Spirit. We understand that. The Holy Spirit's involved in the process. So we have a victorious walk, or we can have, and it's through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. The sting of death, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 58. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren. So we already have victory in him, don't we? We already have victory in him just because we're born again. That's what verse 57 says. But then look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, yes, we are victorious in in our position in Christ, but we are supposed to respond to that by living a life, a victorious life, a steadfast, immovable, victorious life, abounding in the work of the Lord. And... uh, 1 John 2, 13 and 14, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Look at that language. I've written to you children because you know the father. Verse 14, I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now see, this is what I love. Verse 14 explains that. When you look at the overcoming of the evil one that's mentioned here in verse 13, here we have the, uh, uh, the explanation of how it works. Young men, because you're strong. The word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. These are people that are strong in their faith and they know the word. 1 John 4, 4, finally here, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who, the, excuse me, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So, you are from God, little children, and have overcome that. How do, how do we overcome? Now, we're talking about we all are overcomers through faith in Christ. But how do we ever overcome in our walk? It's through God. 
It's through his word in our souls. It's through God. It's through the power, empowerment of the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth. So there's a positional overcoming. All of us have overcome positionally in Christ. And then there's an overcoming that's a day-by-day, step-by-step in our walk of faith. And that comes through trusting in God and allowing him to get the victory. All right, I wanted to get through all of that so that we can begin chapter 13 next time. Not Wednesday because Wednesday night uh, we will be at the Chafer Conference. Uh, my wife and I will be at the Chafer Conference. So uh, not Wednesday night, but next Sunday morning we will pick back up in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for allowing us to get through this section of Romans chapter 12. And thank you for just the rich, you know, so many things, just rich uh, teaching that's in this section of Romans chapter 12 that just helps us to understand really a lot about how we're supposed to walk, uh, being at peace with others, uh, relying upon your strength. Just I could go on and on about all the things that this section teaches us, and I'm so thankful that your word does that. It talks to us as your children about how we are to walk, uh, how we're, we're not supposed to let ourselves be overcome or overpowered by the things of the world. We are supposed to Walk in your strength. Greater are you in us than he that is in the world. We, we have your strength. We have you in us. And so we can have victory on a day-by-day basis because of what you supply. And help us to be humble enough to realize that on our own we can't have victory. It's only as we rely upon you and your strength and your wisdom. We thank you for these reminders. We thank you for your precious word. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.